we are starting with what could be a blip, you might say, when it comes to the tax season. Workers at the Canada Revenue Agency have voted overwhelmingly in favour of taking strike action. That's on behalf of 35,000 workers. They are all represented by the Union of Taxation Employees and the Public Service Alliance of Canada. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Mark Briere, UTE National President. Mark, thank you so much for making some time today. My pleasure. Uh, So what is happening with uh, this is uh, a vote that uh, in favor of taking strike action, how likely is it, do you think, that there will be strike action by your members? Well, it's quite likely, unfortunately, but like, you know, our our objective is not to strike. Uh, Obviously, the objective is to go back to the bargaining table and hammer a deal with the uh, Canada Revenue Agency. So we are back at the table uh, April 17th to 20th, uh, and uh, but we will be in a legal strike position starting Friday, April 14th. Uh, we did get a uh, tremendous support from our members from across the country. People are honestly fed up of waiting to get a contract. Uh, before this negotiation, this round, we were without a contract for eight of the last 10 years. So people are just tired of waiting and waiting and waiting. And, you know, they felt, they felt behind more this time because of the high inflation out there. Everybody is feeling the, uh, the you know, the, the pitch, the pinch from the, the inflation. Uh, so we're no different. So we want to have respect from the employer. We did not get it. It's been almost a year and a half again. And uh, people are just tired of waiting. So we wanted to go get down to business and negotiate an agreement and avoid a strike. And if the government, the CRA and Treasury Board, and I would say even the Minister of Finance, who's got the purse, the money, they don't uh, respect us enough, then we will walk out during the tax season. I, it's, I want to get to, to the timing of that as well, but when you talk about, and I know that you've been without a contract for more than a year, is the main issue wages or what are the, the sticking points? Well, there's two main issues. The wages, well, we're asking also for a wage adjustment because our members are paid less than uh, colleagues working for the Canada Border Services Agency. And uh, we are doing a lot of similar work than they do, and our members are paid on average 9% less than they are. Uh, so we don't think it's fair. But uh, apart from that, we're asking for wage increases that will help our members to keep up with inflation. And the other big ticket, the other big issue at the table is uh, telework. So our members have been working for most of them, 95% of them working uh, remotely during the pandemic. And it didn't prevent us from helping the government to deliver the emergency benefits to the tune of $212 billion while people were working remotely. So, you know, what they say when it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, it seems like the government doesn't know it. Uh, so I understand that, you know, some people are forced to go to work in person, including some of our members, thousands of our members. But others are able to do their work either at the office or at home, and they've been able to do it uh, from home. So we don't understand why the, the government doesn't listen to our members, and people are taking this very seriously. And if the government doesn't uh, want to talk about it, to include it in the next contract, we will walk out. We will go on strike for telework as much as for the money. Right. But I, and I get what you're saying there. And I know that a lot of people have switched to either an at-home model or some kind of a hybrid model when it comes to working. But at the end of the day, if, if your employer tells you, hey, we want you in the office, this job is a job that's done from this address, is it not their right to do so? Well, it is there right now because it's a policy, but does it make sense? And that's the problem. They didn't give us any good reasons. They wanted to please the business community, the, uh, you know, the, uh, poli- uh, the uh, municipal uh, politicians. 
But at the end of the day, if people can do their job from home, why would you, would you force them to go through traffic and then you know, be stuck in traffic and, and having to you know, scramble? Uh, and is it good for the environment? Is there a good reason to force people back to the office like as they're, they're doing now? I don't think so. And if they have a case to, to, to prove to us that the members will be more efficient, I will, see, I will go even further, that our members have been more productive working from home than at the office. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the truth. And they don't, they don't listen. They don't care. And, you know, the pandemic has changed the way things are, you know, the work, the workplace. And I understand if you need to go to the office because your, your duties require it, we have no problem with that. And we do have thousands of our members doing so. But for the rest of them, can we leave them alone and, and work from home if they are productive and happy? Right. Are there any issues with privacy? Is that one of the concerns, given that your workers are dealing with tax information and the personal information of Canadians? No, I don't think so, because if, it, if it's the case, then they'll have to report to the office. That's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, but a lot of times, uh, people working remotely uh, are connected with a secure you know, system uh, installed by CRE employees, and it, it is secured. But uh, and they are, they, they are also, if you wish, monitored by the employer. The CRE has tons of monitoring processes uh, on their network. Everything is monitored by the employer. So uh, they never raised any uh, you know, issues related to confidentiality uh, of the information. So, I, look, we're ready to, to negotiate, and we want to talk about telework or remote work also. But, look, it makes no sense to bring people to the office because, in some cases, we got some people working. Okay, you're in BC. I know people working from Victoria, BC, reporting to uh, the Ottawa headquarters uh, for CRA. And people now they're being forced to go 40% of the time back to their office in Victoria to connect on Teams with their team at, in Ottawa. What 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 sense does it make at right. the office or at home? It makes zero sense. It's ridiculous. So we want to talk about it, but so far for over a year and a half, well, for almost a year and a half. They refuse systematically to talk about it. So we're going to talk about it in April or we'll walk out the job. It's that simple. And looking at the timing, so you, the, the union members will be in a legal strike position as of April 14th, but you do have negotiations scheduled for April 17th to the 20th. Is it a bit mm-hmm. odd that, that there could be potentially a strike action before that next round of negotiation even gets underway? It may look that way, and I understand. And Yes and no. Mostly yes. But not entirely. Uh, the reason why we are we can't go on strike if we so choose uh, before Friday, April 14, is because we had to we have to wait 30 days after the signet the signing of the essential services agreements agreement between us and the CRA that took place on March 14. But it took a long time to get there. I'm not going to get into that. So now it's been a bit pushed off, and then it's it, the date the date happens to be. Uh, just a day before going back to the table. But we've been asking to go back to the table on April 11th. And it's the employer who insisted to go back on the 17th because they absolutely want to have a federal mediator there with us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we don't control everything. Uh, it may look odd. I'm not saying we will, but uh, our colleagues from PSCC, from the four new bargaining units, are in negotiations starting uh, Tuesday the 11th. And they're going to talk, hopefully, about the money and about telework and other important issues that are common to all the tables. And if it's going well, then we don't, there's no need to go out on the 14th. But if it goes really bad and the government doesn't respect them, why would they respect us when Treasury Board is the one giving their mandate to CRE to negotiate with us on the 17th? 
So if it doesn't go well next week, which I will pay a lot of close attention, and it doesn't bode, it won't bode well for us the following week. So we could walk up in the 14. Like we're, we mean business. We want to negotiate, but they better like be respectful. Like they have not been for several years. People are fed up, and it's unfortunate. And we want to get a deal at the table. We don't want to go on strike. But if we don't see the respect that our members deserve after being there for Canadians and the government during the pandemic, bailing out the government, delivering the emergency benefits, which is not our our mandate normally. And we've been, I think we showed a lot of uh, respect for, for the population and the government, helping them uh, during the pandemic. And our members were without a contract for three and a half years when I got the call to help out the government to deliver the emergency benefits. And we took the high road and we did, like, I think a fabulous job. And now they don't pay more respect than they did before. That's not acceptable. And that needs to stop. So that's why we are so in bracket aggressive. I really hope that we will be able to negotiate and get an agreement by the end of the week on the 20th that there's nothing more that I want. But if not, then we're going to go to the the next phase. And Mark, I know it's not a coincidence that this is happening in this time of year during tax season. If you do go into a strike position, what does that mean for Canadians filing tax returns? Well, it means delays. It means... Uh, problems unfortunately um you know if we withdraw our services there'll be no people answering the phones so if people will have questions in the last stretch of the tax season uh, there'll be nobody to pick up the the calls uh there'll be no processing of tax returns uh done by our members uh, across the country i mean there will be some processing going on there's a lot of things done electronically but it will cause a lot of problems i mean it would put this area at a standstill that's the best way I can describe it. So, yes, it would create delays. So I've been saying for months to, to try to warn people to file their taxes sooner than later this year because of that possibility. So if you owe money to the CRA, I mean, no, no big deal. We're just going to take more time to go after, to, to get the money. Uh, but if we do owe you money, well, then if the CRA owes money to, you know, to a taxpayer, well, they should file their taxes the SAP because it can take a bit longer to get their money. But that's not the objective, but you're asking me what can happen. That's what can happen. And I hope it will not be for long. It will be a short strike if we do it, uh, because, I mean, it's very unfortunate. But unfortunately, we're being pushed uh, to our last uh, resort. We're not there yet, but now we got all the tools as of Friday the 14th. And hopefully the government will come with a real will to negotiate this time. And then, you know, get down to business and then move on and go back to work as normal. And if not, then I think it will be on the government. All right, Mark, we will leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us and bringing us the very latest on this. My pleasure. And I hope we're going to have better news or good news soon. Well, let's talk a little real estate. There are some signs that BC's real estate market is starting to recover from what many would describe as a bit of a slump when it comes to sales and prices. Experts hoping those numbers will continue to improve. We've been looking at those numbers from the BC Real Estate Association, but what is actually happening with listings and open houses and such? Well, Doug Gibson is joining us now with Personalized Real Estate. Doug, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always nice to get to the perspective of what's happening with listings and prices. And I know you've seen uh, some things happening that really do look like uh, things are rebounding. Yeah, you know, I think in some segments of the market, we've hit the bottom. Uh, we definitely are getting uh, a lot of people coming through again. So townhouses, for example, are receiving multiple offers again. I sold a unit on Monday and I had 10 offers on this. And that's been the most since way back in March uh, last year. Wow. That, yeah, that does seem like we haven't been looking at scenarios like that or hearing about scenarios like that much lately. No, and what's happening is more so at the lower price point of each type of product. So uh, in my neighborhood, which is right around Kensington Park, uh, a couple of, uh, you know, 1950s bungalows, each sold, one sold about 60000 and the other 70000 over. So definitely got multiple offers. I didn't hear how many on that one, but um, they were priced well, uh, they were in good shape, and, and they got offers because another house in the same area was priced around 1.75 and it's not selling. So you have to be at kind of the, the today's price. You have to be really up to speed at what's going on right now. Well, and we've talked about that before as well in that when, when things start to shift and maybe it can take some time for sellers to catch up to that, if, if things are going down and sellers still want maybe what the price was six months before. But is, it, is this a, a case of do you think things have kind of caught up and people are, are more realistic about what the price is going to be? Yeah, definitely. I, I sold a couple of townhouses in January and, uh, you know, they were real sleepers. Like they were on the market already in December. Uh, nobody put offers on them. So they relisted pretty much the same price and they were good price. And we were able to snatch them up without multiple offers. And I think buyers are just ready. I think that, you know, uh, with interest rates the way they are, even coming down a little bit, uh, you know, this, the pent up demand has been there. And, you know, we were at about 43% below the 10-year average on sales in January. And uh, last month, it was only about 23%. So quite, a, quite an increase. And, and inventory is still quite low. I, I was going to ask you about both of those things. So let's start with interest rates, because how much of an impact are interest rates having, even though, like you said, things, things aren't still racing up, but that must still be making it difficult for some to either get into the market or to if they're trying to maybe get into something bigger? Absolutely. So I would say, you know, in, in East Van, the $3 million market is still very slow. Um, you know, West Side, over $4 million is really slow. So I have this, this great program with Snapstats, and it shows you what uh, segments are, are selling and whatnot. So they'll do, you know, a $100,000 price range. So they'll do what's selling in the five to $600,000 price range. And most of the markets, Burnaby, Vancouver, um, uh, you know, the Tri-Cities even are, are back into seller's markets. So what I've been saying to my clients is like, don't left, be left behind the curve because it is, things are popping, but you do have to be priced right. You know, another unit in a, in a, in a townhouse complex that a client of mine lives in just listed and I said, ooh, that seems high. And I do think it will sit. So it doesn't mean that you list, you sell, you have to be at a price that makes sense for buyers. And if there's five buyers that all think that's a good price, they will often, you know, get into competition with each other. And what about inventory as far as people listing and, and what kind of inventory are you seeing out there? Uh, the inventory is okay. Um, you know, it's, 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 but it's still, it, most 
most types of in most places it's thin and and, and you know renovated units that people can get into like they they don't have to do a big rental they don't have to blow things out those are even less so if you're you know if you had 70 listings how many of those are actually you know updated ready to go those are the ones that are always going to catch the top dollar Right. That makes sense. Uh, are the new rules, I know we've talked to, about some of the new rules that have come in uh, that the, the provincial government has brought in for various different reasons. Are you seeing any of those having an impact as far as how things are playing out? Uh, not so much. I mean, it's, it's, I had some other, I had some real estate agents who were involved in the offer this on Monday asked me, you know, how I was going to, you know, operate with it because they'd seen, or they've heard somebody who had, you know, put in an offer sight unseen um, with the, with the, you know, because of the rescission period. But I mean, most people that are serious, A, aren't going to want to pay, you know, it's $2,500 on a million dollar offer. So, you know, percentage wise, that's not a lot, but most people don't want to give up that kind of money. So, you know, and in these, and it re- the rescission only really is effect- in effect when you have a no subject offer. If you have subjects, those essentially, you know, the rescission becomes, you know, a moot point. It's still there, but you're, you you'd get out of a, a contract because of one of the subjects. So more so it's a, honestly, Jill, it's kind of a nuisance. And I think for the, for the sellers, it's hard because, you know, you, you, you get multiple offers on Monday and you have to wait till, Friday morning and wake up to know whether somebody's changed their mind or not. So um, it's there. We all have to deal with it. We are. But uh, no, I at this point haven't heard any stories that, uh, you know, somebody got somebody got affected. And it's, you, you know, the realtor's job, too, is to pick the people who they think are going to follow through. And hopefully they have a relationship with the other agent. Um, and that helps. You know, I've been around for 16 years, so I quite often know the agents that I'm working with and and that can really be a big advantage. Right. And you mentioned, too, offers without subjects. Are you still seeing that happen? Because I, I think that was one of the, the reasons that that rule was brought in or that was certainly getting the attention just in the, the kind of the frenzy of the market. Is that still happening or are people a bit more measured? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. That's, that's the only reason that was brought in. Because like I said, if you had, if you, if you had an offer with four day, even one day subject and you don't remove it because of the subject, like you do an inspection, there's no penalty. It's just like a normal transaction. So the, the rescission period was brought in for, you know, the, the idea was to give people some time to do their due diligence. But it's, I mean, it's an expensive due diligence because you've got to pay the penalty to get out if you're the winning offer. So, I mean, most people do their due diligence ahead of time or well-qualified. Um, and, you know, people will do an inspection. Like, we had an inspection done ahead of time. Um, so, with, uh, with, with, with yes, yeah, so offers coming in no subjects, yes, that is happening once again. You know, people are, are well-qualified. They're over 20% down. They're 25, 35% down. I mean, the bank of mom and dad is helping out a lot of, a lot of people or, you know, they've, they're selling a one bed condos and they've made money and they're moving into a two or three bedroom or it's two people moving in together. So that's, that's really how the market's still moving. And um, I think, like I said, the, the lower end of the price points are, are moving once again. So we're, we're expecting interest rates to come down. And I think that the word that's helping people gain some confidence that it's not going to go six and eight and nine percent it's you know it's some of them some of them are at six percent but you can get a five-year fix at 
489 right 4.89 right now right and this is generally the busy time of year isn't it springtime for for real estate yeah. do, do you see that that as we get into further into april may we'll be seeing that again yeah i mean it, it ramped up in march like we're our, Mar- our january february was slow it was an excellent time to buy and now we're we're back into you know i had i'm sure i had 70 groups through my my three open that. houses <laughs> All right. Well, Doug, thanks so much. I know it is a busy time of year for you. So thanks so much, though, for joining us with this update. Appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm not too busy today. I've got the five-year-old up at Blackcomb right now. Oh, nice. (laughs) Very nice. All right. Thanks again so much for your time. Okay. You're welcome. Well, happy Good Friday to you. This is, for many people, a long weekend. Uh, Many people will be gathering for meals, I'm sure. For others, no big deal, just another weekend. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about whether or not Easter weekend is still a big deal for people who are religious, or if that's kind of uh, become more of an afterthought. Well, John Stackhouse joins us now, Professor of Religious Studies at Crandall University. John, thank you so much for being with us again. Yeah, good to be with you. Well, I know we've talked about this before and kind of the changing uh, face, I guess you could say, or demographic when it comes to religion in Canada. What are you seeing as far as people, uh, the religions, and how many people uh, still follow religion? Well, the recent release of data from the 2021 census, which took them about a year and a half to get out, but, you know, everybody was affected by COVID, so it took the stats can a while to get the numbers out. We've seen a continuation of decline of Christian identification in Canada and of Christian observance. Uh, in non-scholar speak, that means fewer people would call themselves Christians in Canada now. Fewer of them were, a fewer of them would go to church, but it's still roughly half the population. So it's still quite a lot of people who would identify themselves with that religion. Hmm. Do you think things changed as well in that we know religious gatherings were something along with so many other things that were uh, in some cases cancelled and were certainly put on hold during the pandemic? Do you think that that might have had an impact as well if people maybe stopped going and then never really started it up again? Yes, we are seeing that. Um, It wouldn't have shown up on the census so much because it was still, as you know, we've been taken in 2021, so we're in the middle of the pandemic then. But you are right. I think your suspicion's right. We've seen that some churches have rebounded, but lots of them haven't. They haven't recovered the same number of followers, and they haven't recovered financially. So there has been a bit of culling of the herd in that respect. And what about kind of the the shifting demographic, I suppose, or, or different religions in that in in the past, when we, we look at kind of the breakdown of religion in Canada, it was always widely, uh, you, you could be expected that Christianity would be the largest religion. But what about the, the emergence of other religions? Yes, Christianity and no religion continue to be the two main positions of Canadians. But we do see a steady rise in immigration uh, from countries that aren't majority Christian. So we, uh, while we're taking in some Christians from places like uh, the Philippines and from Korea, we are certainly taking in lots more Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. Uh, Not so much from the other world religions, although, of course, in Vancouver, we know that we've got a lot of Sikhs. Um, So in the major metropolitan areas like Vancouver, Winnipeg, Toronto, we're much more aware of people from other religions. All told, though, um, all those religions put together wouldn't make up 15% of the population. So while it can seem like there is a lot, 
uh, I remember living in Vancouver, uh, you could get that feeling. It really is a function of being in one of the two or three big metro areas where you feel that way. Across the country, maybe about 10 or 15% of people from other religions. Hmm. And what is it, do you think, that, that still draws people? Like you said, that, that, that there is a large population as well of people with no religion. What is it, though, that still draws people to religion, whatever religion that might be? Well, religions really just offer the same thing in, in a crucial sense. I don't, I don't mean that religions amount to the same thing, but what all religions do is to give us a, a comprehensive guide to life. Religions, each religion says, this is the way the world actually is. And each religion says, this is the best way to live in the world. Well, of course, we all want to know the way the world actually is. We all want some kind of guide to life that's reliable. And whether we make it up ourselves or we find someone else who's got an authoritative take on it, the, the big religions have been around quite a while and millions of people find them to be compelling. So that's why lots of other people properly check them out. I think the key is to look at them in their best form, to, uh, to look at Christianity in churches that are the most lively and the most faithful, uh, whether it's a mosque or a gurdwara or a temple. Um, don't look at, at Muslims at their worst. Look at them at their best. Same with Buddhists and Hindus. And see what might be a compelling story that might make sense of your own life as well. Right, because I, I would imagine too, for for somebody maybe who has been uh, uh, maybe a, a bit um, not so taken with it, or or has left maybe and reconsidered uh, their beliefs, uh, that could be because of scandals that we've seen in various churches and certainly uh, histories that are are less than favorable. Yes, definitely, and and this is partly the the problem Christianity has in a majority Christian country like Canada. If you go to the the Muslim world, there are lots of really terrible mosques and lots of pretty bored uh, Muslims. If you go to China, um, there's a lot of, of people who maybe have a nodding acquaintance with Confucianism or with Buddhism, but they're not very serious about it. If you go to India, lots of people call themselves Hindus or Sikhs, but they're fairly terrible uh, examples of faithfulness because the religion is just sort of automatic for them, you know, sort of social religion for them. So that's why I say um, it's, it's best really to ignore the people who aren't very serious about their religion. Take a look at the people who are and then make your choice from there. Are you seeing a bigger shift as well? Uh, people maybe that in the past would have considered themselves religious and shifting to becoming more spiritual? Well, what we're finding is that people who call themselves spiritual but not religious tend to be people who are leaving the Christian tradition and are trying to hover somewhere between Christianity and no religion at all, and even no spirituality at all. And they are a minority of Canadians, but they're a shrinking minority. And what some of us are, are suggesting, those of us who do the sociology of religion in Canada, is that this is a kind of unstable group. They, their kids probably won't opt for that. And what a lot of us think is that we're seeing a great sorting out of religion in Canada. On one end will be the people who are really serious about their faith, might be Muslims, might be Jews, might be Christians. And on the other end will be people who just don't find religion in any form all that interesting. And in the, in the middle will not be all that many people, except people maybe transiting from one to the other. 
Currently, there's a lot of people who are post-Christian, ex-Christian, sort of Christian. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised in 20 years if most of that population has decided to go one way or the other. And, and why do you think that shift, and why do you think that, that that might be what we're seeing in, say, the next 10, 20 years? Well, I think many of the people who are spiritual but not religious remember what was good about their Christian past, but they also know what was bad or boring, and so they're trying to hang on to the good without hanging on to the bad. I understand that, but to me, the solution is to find a good Christian church. To make up your own religion, to make up your own spirituality, it takes a lot of work. It's hard to sustain. And when the kids have to go to hockey or they, they or ballet, and when it's another Sunday morning and you're a little bit too busy, it's just very easy to, to spend the weekend you know, catching up and being busy and, and have, trying to have some fun. And religion, if it doesn't really have a solid community to which you can join, it's pretty hard to stay religious all by yourself. And most people eventually don't. Right. And isn't that maybe what people got out of it in the past was perhaps a sense of community, a place to go, a a family outside of your family for support, and perhaps there's not that need anymore? Well, I think there probably, that's a really good question. I think there is that need, and I think that people um, have, have forgotten in some ways that religion offers more than just interesting beliefs about the world and, and a kind of moral code. I think that our immigrant population, many people go to their uh, Gurdwara or their temple or their mosque precisely because that's where the language of the home country is still spoken. That's where people still eat traditional foods. That's where we can still feel a little bit at home. So we'll see how many of them still go to these religions in the next generation or the one after that. But in the meanwhile, I think you're right that serious religious communities provide a lot more than just interesting beliefs about the divine and a moral code. They offer a community to walk with you through the challenges of life. And and that continues to be a need. I think many of us feel more lonely than ever after the pandemic. And for people who are hearing this and are feeling lonely this weekend, I'd say, well, this is a Christian holiday weekend. Maybe check out one of your local churches and see if there might be a new family for you. Do you think, though, part of that is also, I mean, wars have started over a difference of beliefs when it comes to religion. Is part of that because it does seem that, that people, if, more traditionally, if you, are, if you are a true believer of one particular religion, then there's no wiggle room there and, and there's no agreeing to disagree. It's either that this is it and, and there's fighting over it. It seems that people can't put those differences aside and agree, okay, we're going to believe different things. Well, there's lots of instances in the world that are encouraging where people who believed very different things got along quite well. There's instances in Spain when the Muslims ran things there, but of Jews and Christians getting along okay. Um, when the Mughal Empire and indeed when the British Empire were in India, people of different religions got along quite peacefully. Uh, Lebanon, uh, two generations ago, was another example of people living with very different religions. You know, frankly, I don't think people go to war very often over religious belief. What they go to war over is, guess what, land, money, power, status, security. And religion is a convenient set of flags under which to justify grabbing for these other things. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot more motivational to do it in the name of God than it is to do it in the name of just grabbing your neighbor's land. So my sense as a historian is that 
not that many wars have really broken out over people's differences of opinion because people have been living side by side with neighbors of different religions, lots of places for hundreds of years. I think religion just becomes a convenient excuse to go after my neighbor that I don't like for other reasons. All right. So, well, it's an interesting, interesting topic for sure, especially on mm-hmm. this weekend. John Stackhouse, we'll leave it there. But as always, thanks so much for joining the show. Yeah, good question. Thanks for the visit. Always enjoy talking to you. As you know, city crews have been working with the police, with fire crews as well, clearing tents on East Hastings Street. Earlier today, Vancouver City Councillor Rebecca Bly joined Mornings with Simi to talk about how that process has gone. In terms of the uh, initial um, um, plan to to clear the structures um, two days ago, yes, that was completed sort of in that day. And now we work, uh, we're working continuously, engineering staff, homelessness, outreach staff, um, and if needed at all, um, of course, with the support of the VPD, are down um, in the downtown east side, uh, in these few blocks, uh, connecting with people as um, new structures may emerge uh, and making sure folks know um, that the structures cannot be left in place um, and need to be moved along. And then, of course, finding shelter um, beds for those that would like to be uh would like to move indoors. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Nicole Mucci with Union Gospel Mission. And Nicole, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Last time we talked, it was kind of as things were happening on East Hastings Street. And we talked about the fact that you at Union Gospel Mission, you had already been turning people away on a daily basis when it comes to shelter spaces. How are things going now? You know, it is a really cold and wet, miserable day out there today. I'm sure you and our uh, listeners all know that. But this morning, as I was heading along Hastings, I noticed that there was around 25 to 30 tents set up again along the main corridor and down some of those side streets, which, you know, I think folks really need to do what they need to do to stay out of the rain and to stay warm. And as much as the, this was taking place and city officials and police were saying that they wouldn't be allowing the tents to set up again or the encampment, are you surprised at all that this is what you're seeing happening in that area? I think knowing that there isn't um, necessarily adequate shelter to meet everybody's different needs, especially those who might have pets or partners, um, I'm not entirely surprised to see that folks are trying to find somewhere safe to continue to shelter, especially during this really poor weather. Have you noticed an increase as well in people coming to the UGM and looking for shelter space? We, um, like we had said the other day when you and I were chatting, our, unfortunately our shelter really is kind of at capacity all the time and we're, we're pretty regularly um, you know, spending time trying to find individuals other places that they're able to stay, other shelters, just because we, we hit capacity quite quickly during intake. And so I can't say, like, it's above or out of the norm simply just because so many people are experiencing homelessness. But we have also had people coming to our outreach workers and saying, hey, do you have um, toiletries? Do you have sleeping bags? Do you have stuff to help me stay dry? Uh, because many of them had their entire belongings uh, chucked out or get wrecked in the process of the decampment. 
Right. And so people looking at and I had seen some other uh, accounts of that and reports of that as well. Uh, people basically kind of wandering around until they could find some place to just uh, kind of uh, shelter wherever that might be and try and get a bit of sleep. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, trying to really just get a handle on what what they had happened to them, because unfortunately, many, many of the folks whose uh, tents were decamped or de deconstructed they lost their belongings and so folks are starting from you know like completely from scratch some of them where they've lost the any extra clothes they had or like I said like toiletries potentially medications um, if their IDs or anything like that was in the tent when they were uh, decamped that could have either ended up in the personal belongings bins, which um, not everyone has been able to access yet, or it could have ended up in the garbage. And so a lot of people from that Hastings corridor that had been along the encampment are in really dire straits right now. I wanted to talk to you as well, and and we are still keeping tabs on that and seeing what's happening next. But this also happens to fall on what is for many people a long weekend. It is the Easter weekend, and I know that means there is an annual event happening at the Union Gospel Mission. Will that be different at all this year, do you think, because of the increased demand? I think what we're going to see this weekend at our Easter meal is our community members coming together in community and that's one of the most important and I think beautiful things about what Union Gospel Mission is able to offer in the downtown east side. We've been around for more than 80 years. We have weathered a lot of different storms and a lot of different, um, we're, we're there for folks when things get really tough and that's what we're going to do this weekend. We are going to provide great food. We're going to provide space for celebration or quiet contemplation. Whatever people need in this moment after this week, we are there for them. Uh, so how will things be unfolding? I know uh, every year we talk about the, the huge amount of food that is put together, the volunteers that work on this. Uh, how many people or do you know how many people might be coming and taking part in this meal on Saturday? Yeah, so we are anticipating around 22 to 2,500 meals being served this weekend on Saturday alone, actually, just on the one day, which is a lot of food to prepare and to get out the door. We've had volunteers uh, preparing already earlier this week for the meal. It usually takes uh, over 100 volunteers and staff to, to run the day to make it happen. And it also is just an enormous amount of food. It's something like 1,600 pounds of ham, 700 pounds of scalloped potatoes, there's going to be pineapples, there's pie, uh, and 700 pounds of veggies. And really, it's a good meal, and it's a really amazing opportunity for our community members to come together just in a space that's judgment-free and safe. Do you find that it's also an opportunity, and maybe even more so this year, because of what's happened and because there are so many people that uh, have been displaced because of this, is it kind of a, a first point of contact as well that maybe somebody might make that connection that they wouldn't have had they not come and taken part in the meal? A hundred percent, and I'm so glad you brought that up. So one of the things that is so valuable about having these large community meals is the fact that we do have outreach workers on site, on staff, helping make the day possible. And so it is oftentimes for people, their first opportunity to come in and get to hear a little bit about the services that UGM has um, and what we could, what we could walk alongside folks with as they, you know, begin to 
consider their next steps forward in their lives. So whether that's our case managers working with them to try to see what services they may need and are available to them, if it's exploring potential recovery options. We have a brand new women and family center that is just in, you know, it's been running for about a year now. And so we're really starting to see a lot more women come access our services there. And these meals are such a good space for that first connection to happen. And then also, I think something that is really great that doesn't get too highlighted enough is that for many of our volunteers, especially the first time volunteers, those folks who think, oh, you know, like it's Easter, it's I've got a long weekend, I should try to volunteer and give back to my community um, in some way. I think it's really eye opening for people the first time they come in and volunteer at UGM, just how uh, humanizing it can be for them to serve and witness like the downtown east side and the community members and just to remember the humanity that shared humanity that we all have and it just really opens up that sense of compassion and understanding that you might not be on the same journey as somebody else but you certainly can understand their struggle a little bit easier once you put a face to that story Right. And uh, th- that makes so much sense that uh, that would be something that that people would would come away from. And, and again, knowing I mean, nobody is suggesting that that this one meal is any kind of solution or, or, or some uh, way to, to fix all of the the issues that we're seeing. But it certainly does seem like like it is something and that there are there are good things that can come from it. Of course. And it's so important to understand that there is no like magic simple solution to solving homelessness or to um, solving addiction. But, you know, one of the things that we really take to heart at UGM is that it's really one life at a time and we can help, you know, potentially start a relationship that could alter one person's life. And each time one person has an opportunity to start to make those like lifelong changes, it really can help transform a community. And even if, this weekend, all that comes out of it is that space for community, that safety, that that sense of togetherness. If that's the entire purpose of this weekend, it still is a win, especially after this really difficult week where so many people lost so much. All right. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a happy Easter. Union leaders in this province in the marine industry are once again calling for more inspections when it comes to small tugboats, saying that more disasters are likely if this change isn't made. Jason Woods is the president of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Local 400 Marine Section and joins us now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Jill. Well, it's something that we've certainly seen uh, disasters. We uh, know that there have been fatalities. We've seen Transport Canada reports. Can you talk a little bit about what specifically you are calling for when it comes to more inspections and more safety when it comes to those tugboats? Well, yeah, that's that's really a good synopsis. What we really need to see is, you know, mandatory inspections for all commercial vessels in Canada. There shouldn't be an arbitrary line that says, you know, 15 tons and under don't warrant an inspection. Uh, Transport Canada likes to say that they use a risk-based analysis for regulations and legislation, but this is the riskiest part of the marine industry and bears the least amount of scrutiny. 
So how does it work now then as far as these tugboats, the tugboats of this particular size? And certainly we see a lot of them on the West Coast. How is it regulated right now? Well, they are covered by the same regulations and laws that govern any commercial vessel at sea in terms of, uh, you know, safe operation. But because of their size, um, they don't have to do mandatory inspections. So there's no safety management systems. There's no designated inspectors coming to check their vessels. Often you find vessels of this class with improper certificates for um, the operators. They don't have the proper captain's license or safety uh, certificates. They also may not have proper um, protective equipment, like what we saw in the Angelica. They had uh, um, their survival suits were out of date and not inspections and was one of the root causes to the um, fatalities in the case of the Angelica up in um, the north of BC here up over a year and a half ago now, two years. And can, can you talk a little bit more about the Ingenica? And people will remember that one, uh, again, that sinking uh, in February of 2021. You mentioned the, the survival suits, but were there other issues as well with that tugboat and, and with the fact that it sunk and there were fatalities? Well, it just starts with the appropriateness of the vessel for the tow, right? You have a very small vessel with very low freeboard meaning not a lot of deck out of the water. You've got a very small vessel with not a lot of power, and you're going to send it into a gale. You're going to send it on purpose into a storm. Um, that's just bad management as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's so many root causes for accidents, but, you know, right away we had a tremendous year for snow on the south coast here, what was the first thing that the meteorology department says is stay off the roads, right? Yeah. Same for you, same for me. Don't go if you don't need to. This is the exact same case. You've got Rio Tinto, which is one of the largest mining companies on, on, on the globe, and they're cutting corners to the point where they cannot find a cheaper operator to bring their goods to their, to their, to their site. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of problems starting at the beginning. A, they shouldn't have left. The employer should have said, okay, we'll defer this tomorrow or till the weather's better and then go from there. But the fact that they did go with an inappropriate vessel for the weather, for the, for the amount of weight that they were towing. Um, but there's responsibility for Wainwright. There's responsibility for Rio Tinto, I would say, as the, as the, uh, the person putting out the tender, um, Things can be do, done better. They don't have to always be done on the cheapest dime ever because when that happens, people cut corners to make a profit. And when corners are cut at the sea, it's often terrible and tragic. And what about the issue of training as well? Not saying that the, the crew was to blame, but is there enough focus on training and making sure people understand the dangers and understand what's required of the job? No. I mean, you know, I've gone to the local trade school myself. I got my marine certificates at BCIT in North Vancouver. Um, all of it was schoolwork. There was very little practical education as part of my, my, my schooling. Um, it was all just to get the certificates. 
Yes, there's some marine emergency duties where they put you in a boat and you play around a little bit. There's some firefighting courses that are practical and you have to do it. Same with first aid, but most of it's theory. All the training's done on the job. When you get that job, some employers will train you. Um, C-SPAN has a fairly large training program where you do six weeks of training before you're cut loose on your own. Whereas, you know, a company like Wainwright, Charlie died on his first day at work with no training, with no experience. I don't know. You know, things can be done a lot better than that. And Charlie, you're talking about Charlie was one of the crew members, one of the crew of the, the Ingenica? That's correct. Charlie Craig, yeah. Where do you go from here then as as far as making this call louder? I know that you, you've called on the, the federal transport minister uh, to do better when it comes to these vessels. What do you do next? We go to Ottawa. We go to Victoria. We keep... We keep banging away at this until something gives because, you know, I've worked on the water for over 20 years and I've never seen anything get safer. All I've seen is the risks get bigger. I've seen the shortcuts get shorter. And I've seen that there's really no barrier to entry in the marine industry here on the West Coast than, other than you buying a tugboat and off you go. So it's uh, we need to see a, a standardization. We need to see proper training. We need to see... Um, in real enforcement, we need to see that people will, you will see somebody and you will be boarded and they will check your vessel to make sure that people are certified and that your PPE and safety equipment is working and that you have the right amount of crew for the vessel and for the work that you're doing. But at this point, because so few people are ever inspected, there's no deterrent, right? When you drive on the highway, you slow down because you could see a police. You don't have that same problem at sea. In fact, it's the complete opposite. You can go your entire career without ever seeing anyone. Well, we will continue following along with this to see if anything does change. But Jason, thank you so much for taking the time and for talking to us more about this today. Yeah, thank you, Jill. And, you know, anything, if you'd ever like to speak again, please feel free to contact me. Um, This is something that, you know, somebody who's worked on the water, whose family works on the water, is very personal to us. You know, no reason that anyone should go to work to lose their life. Thanks so much for being with us on this Friday. It is Good Friday. It is also World Health Day. This is also the 75th anniversary of the World Health Organization, the WHO, which we know has goals to promote health and well-being around the planet. So we thought we would take a little bit of time to look at public health, look at the successes and the importance of observing this day. Dr. Valerie Crooks is with us now, Canada Research Chair in Health Service geographies as well associate dean at the ubc faculty of environment thank you so much for being here today oh you're welcome thanks for having me i I know it's it's a day and we kind of talk about it as as a day to be observed on on april 7th but what do you think the importance is of world health day and at least taking some time to look at this 
Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question. There's uh, health-related factors that we think about all the time, probably built into our decision-making, whether we're making policies around housing and addressing homelessness, all the way to things such as, you know, recent discussions in the Lower Mainland around transit. And today's a day where the World Health Organization is really inviting us to make those conversations explicitly about health, to think about what it means to be healthy, to accomplish goals around globally achieving health for all and also thinking about access to health services which is uh, you know an ongoing thing that we always are challenged with in Canada but internationally almost one-third of the world's population lacks access to basic health services that would help them uh, maintain a healthy life. And do we kind of lose sight of that uh, sometimes and maybe the pandemic made us look at that more kind of the inequities when it comes to healthcare or even access to drugs and therapies. But do we kind of uh, tend to lose sight of that and only focus on, on what's happening in our own area? Yes, I think that's something that, you know, it's it's quite easy for us, as you're saying, to lose sight of. So we kind of think locally, um, think about what our concerns are, what our challenges, our issues are. And, of course, the World Health Organization is there to help us push the agenda and actually think globally. So to think about connections between countries, to think about sort of supranational um, health policies that we can consider implementing, and also to help to draw a spotlight on the movement of people between countries and the implications that has uh, for health. Because, you know, we can be focused on what's happening here domestically and lose sight of the fact that actually what happens abroad has a great impact here. And also the fact that um, Canada and Canadians have the ability to have very positive impacts internationally and, and uh, organizations like the WHO can really help us to consider what, uh, what those actions could be. Uh, do you think that it's uh, there has been maybe more awareness of the WHO, but perhaps also uh, more people that might be skeptical of it coming uh, through this pandemic and and people were angry in some some cases and, and responding to it? I mean, this was something that was new to, to all of us, but I, I do feel like the, the World Health Organization in some instances kind of took the, the heat for that. Yeah, so I think the World Health Organization is an organization, as you were saying today, we're celebrating the 75th anniversary. It's something that's often in the background. It's unseen, unheard, but doing very important work globally. And then the uh, recent COVID-19 pandemic brought things into the spotlight as people were trying to understand what was happening in relation to the spread of COVID-19. Um, you know, at some points there were finger pointing between jurisdictions saying, well, actually, if you had have acted faster, then we wouldn't be dealing with this here. Well, no, if you had have acted faster, then they wouldn't have been dealing with it there, whatever those impacts are. And so it was kind of thrust into an international or global spotlight that we don't necessarily see on a day-to-day basis. But the work that's undertaken by the WHO and those who work for it is oftentimes sort of in the background helping to, you know, alert us to even, um, for example, emerging global health issues that that we should be attentive to. But the global spread of the COVID-19 pandemic and the way in which it impacted so many people's lives um, around the world at a particular point in time really thrust this agency into the spotlight for sure. And do you think it's also led to more discussions or more focus on the things that are seemingly out of our control, uh, like something uh, like a world pandemic? And, and sure, we, we knew or we were told guidelines and, and offered up the things on, on what people could do. And like you said, there was a lot of finger pointing too of if mm-hmm. this had happened sooner or this. But does it at least get the discussion on, on the things that are kind of out of our control, but then also the things that are within our control when it comes comes to our health, our own primary health care. 
Yes, I do think that this has happened as a result of the pandemic. So just to build on the point that you were just making, one of the things that I think actually people have sort of developed a greater awareness of coming through the recent COVID-19 pandemic is the ways in which actually health impacts so many different sectors. So we saw this almost cascade of effects where initially we might have been focused on COVID-19 itself. And then we started to see, well, wait a minute, actually, when people are not able to go to work in certain jurisdictions, that impacts the supply of goods, that impacts the delivery of goods, that creates this sort of amplification effect in terms of supply chains that results in my ability to, um, you know, get certain goods at home actually being altered as um, due to the kinds of changes that we were seeing. And so I think that there's that kind of awareness coming out as well as also what you were pointing out in terms of, you know, us having sort of a, a greater demonstration recently of the demands placed on our health system and the way in which if those demands increase actually its ability to, to deliver may be challenged, um, as well as the ability for us to provide ongoing primary health care, as you were talking about, in light of also meeting increasing demands um, in acute care um, and in trauma care due to what we were seeing as a result of um, COVID-19. So I think that, you know, the pandemic has brought into our daily conversations more issues about health and has sometimes actually increased our ability to understand the interconnectedness between, as I was mentioning um, earlier, things like transportation and transit systems and how those can actually be impacted by explicit um, health-related events. Hmm. And do you think we're, we're spending enough time? I know that you, you focus on or you, you, you spend a lot of time looking at, at things like um, chronic illness, palliative health and such, but do we spend enough time, do you think, looking at preventative health, uh, preventative health care? Well, you know what, even if I felt like we were spending enough time, I would say that enough could actually really never be enough. In other words, you know, identifying those ways that we can prevent um, the onset of illness, the onset of disease, will never be good enough at identifying all the ways in which we could do that. In other words, what I'm trying to suggest is we can always push ourselves to do better. So if we feel like we're maybe doing that well enough in relation to one particular type of illness or one particular group of diseases, there are always going to be others um, for which we can have great greater attention. The other sort of related issue in that regard is that, um, you know, preventative care, it, it doesn't rest solely in the domain of um, public health or health services, but actually preventing the onset of disease, it actually rests across the spectrum of all the kinds of policies that we offer, whether we're thinking about offering uh, a robust education system and what that means to, again, things like transit, supply chains, to housing, um, to employment readiness. So, you know, it really does cross, cross-cut everything. And so, you know, we know that... Um, you know, investments in preventative care are incredibly sound in terms of the return on the investment in terms of people's health. And so we always have to challenge ourselves to think about new ways that we can do that and the ways in which doing things like uh, investing in greater social care actually has an impact on what we see in terms of the health of the population. So no matter how good we're getting at it, we always have the opportunity to do better. And this is what uh, many public health professionals are in place in order to do to identify mechanisms for us to do that and to challenge us to sort of raise the bar in terms of um, how we're doing that through policy and practice. 
And you mentioned a couple of times transit, uh, transit systems and, and such and how that kind of plays a role. Uh, do you think that there's work to be done? Because there, there are certainly uh, people that are questioning the role of the WHO that are a bit skeptical, maybe coming out to, at this point in the pandemic. Uh, there's our conspiracy theories about things like 15 minute cities. Uh, how do we kind of get the trust of, of people that, that these are these are organizations that that are really there for for the the greater good or that that are there talking about health Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a number of ways through which we could do that, but one of which is to sort of keep our ear to the ground, understand the kinds of conversations that people are having in their daily lives, thinking about the languages, uh, sorry, languages, well, languages, thinking about the language that people are using to communicate about the kinds of issues that you were just mentioning, and making sure that our public health messaging is actually echoing that language in terms of actually talking about things like um, transportation around health for all, even addressing head-on um, conspiracy that we actually hear becoming popular vocabulary and making sure that we're actually communicating about those things as opposed to avoiding those difficult conversations. Um, You know, we want to address them head on and we want to make sure that the messaging is right so that people are feeling safe and comfortable um, and that also people can identify sort of um, safe uh, public health practices and in ways that they recognize actually are doing good as opposed to doing harm. All right. It's an interesting conversation for sure to be having on this World Health Day. Dr. Valerie Crooks, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're most welcome. Anytime. Well, it is time for us to check in with Richard Wolak for his monthly food segment, food contributor here as well, host of the Van Foodster podcast. Richard, good afternoon and happy Friday. Good Friday to you. Happy Good Friday to you, too. Uh, You've got some great recommendations for us today. Let's get right to it. There are a lot of new restaurants again. We were talking about this a few months ago, and we have a lot more. And I've been trying a lot of of different ones around Vancouver, Vancouver, North Vancouver this time around. Um, The first one is actually called Wild Light Kitchen and Bar. It's on the University of BC in uh, Delmont Lands, but it's actually not at UBC. It's it's at the New Lelum Village, which is one of the new villages out there, uh, which is condo development. And it's got an urban fair there, and you've got this wildlife restaurant, which is adjoined to it. Uh, it is the first restaurant by the Jimmy Patterson Group. Uh, first time they've actually gone into restaurants in, in the, so many, many years, and they've done just a beautiful job. They've got a top-notch restaurant, great food. It's open for lunch, for happy hour, for dinner now. It's open for brunch on the weekends. It's Chef Warren Chow is leading it. And uh, if anybody remembers Juniper Restaurant in Chinatown about five or six years ago, he was executive chef there. And he's gone on to uh, bigger and better things, and now he is running the whole show there. And they've just done a great job. So just to give you kind of an idea, it's more like West Coast cuisine. Uh, prices are very good. So I think this is because of the Patterson Group buying power. Uh, but you don't find downtown Vancouver, if you're looking for like a steak and fritz dish, you're roughly around 45 right now. And this, this one out there is about 38. So um, prices-wise is good. If you want a really good gourmet meal, head, to, head out to the UBC area. Uh, they're partnering with UBC Farms, and they're uh, one of their salads is UBC Farm Harvest Greens. Uh, they're doing a wild, wildlife pescatarian charcuterie board for sharing. Uh, they're doing a, a, a seared Hokkaido scallops risotto dish, which was really good. Uh, sable fish, um, BC duck. And then for dessert, there's a fun kind of thing. Uh, it's called coconut cannoli. A little bit different than your Italian cannoli, but uh, they've done a really nice plating job on it. And uh, it's got chocolate soil. 
it's a passion fruit sorbet. It goes really well together. So this is a great spot to check out um, when you're heading out that, that direction. And then over on Main Street, um, so there's a bit of a change happening on Main Street yet again. Uh, as we've just heard recently, a lot of uh, plant-based vegan restaurants have been closing. Uh, what's, but what is opening is Mexican. There's a lot of Mexican restaurants coming to Main Street now. So I'm going to talk about two of them today. Uh, the first one is called Tamale Shop. It's at 2525 Main Street. It took over the, the former location of the Kafka's Coffee near Broadway. And they're making tamales. And that's not something you've ever found in Vancouver uh, much of. But it's traditional from Mexico City. And uh, tamales made out of corn. So, of course, corn uh, with other ingredients kind of stuffed in a corn husk. Uh, they're doing everything. They're doing savory. They're doing sweet. It's very good. It's they call it the energy snack. So apparently a lot of hikers have been buying these tamales to go hiking up in the mountains because it's really good for you. It can sustain you for the day. Uh, I tried their uh, mole chicken was really good. They've got a whole bunch of different ones, pork. They've got um, plant, a plant-based selection. Uh, they're doing some dessert ones. The chocolate um, tamale is very good. They've also got a, a pineapple now and a blackberry uh, so kind of fun ones there, too. And you can make it as a meal or you can just buy it as a snack. They've also got them frozen. And you can get them frozen there. You can now get them some frozen in a few other shops around Vancouver. They're also making tacos in-house. They're doing horchata. They're doing uh, tortas. We will know what your sandwiches. You can a lot of get the same kind of um, uh, ingredients kind of going into all these different dishes. Um, but they're, they're doing a horchata smoothie. And they're doing something called a, uh, it's a, it's a Mexican coffee. And I actually haven't found that, had that around Vancouver much before. With Doria, it's been a huge hit. They're selling 80% of her coffees is, is this one drink. Uh, and they're doing concha. So if you don't know what concha is, it is like a Mexican bread. And um, it's been a huge hit. You'll find different colors of concha. You've got chocolate, you've got vanilla, you've got different kinds there and people like to have it with their coffee if, if you're in mexico and the same thing goes for here so that's a great spot to check out they're open daily and they're open all day there hmm. and then uh, a restaurant in gastown is called uh, gastronomy gastown it's opened a couple months ago it took over the old nickley restaurant in uh, gastown and they're doing everything so it's italian but it's kind of italian with a twist so um, you're going to have really interesting dishes. You've got zucchini, uh, mosaic, raviolo, which is a great salad with uh, herb ricotta cheese on it. Uh, I had a broccoli Caesar salad there, which was really good. Uh, beef tartare, uh, braised beef. And then they're all about pizza. So uh, Chef Salim, he comes to us from, he's from France. Um, he worked in Michelin star restaurants in France. He came to Hawksworth and he was working with them. He developed their pizza program. And now he's over at Gastronomy Gastown doing pizza and doing really good pizza. So he does a three-day fermentation process on his dough. It makes it for a light and, and easy to digest when you're eating pizza because sometimes you get that heavy feel, so this does not give you that heavy feel. So uh, they're doing a lot of great uh, things there. And then Italian baked Alaska for dessert is always a fun one as well. I think they're uh, closed on Tuesday, but they're open every other day for dinner. And then a new spot on Fraser Street. This is actually, um, this goes back to, I don't know if you remember, there was a restaurant called Cafe Kathmandu. It was on uh, Commercial Drive for many years. And it shut down in 2016. And the owners were like, going to look for a new location. And that was a plan. But then they went over to India and then got stuck over there when the pandemic hit and couldn't get back. So um, they finally came back, decided, you know what, this is time to open our new restaurant. Let's find a location. And they did up on Fraser and 47th, I guess it's around there called Momo Hut. So that's what the new the new name is. And they're basically serving favorites of Cafe Kathmandu. So if anybody remembers that, this is your new spot to go. 
You've got uh, momos. You've got uh, a bunch of different Indian kind of Himalayan dishes. I had a chili fish that was really good, spicy and sweet. And then I had something called crispy cooker chicken momo. I didn't actually know what it was. And the owner said it's his creation, so something new. Um, but it was fun, and it was a great spot. And prices are really good there as well. Um, and then another spot called it's on the same block. So this is where things are kind of being interesting in that area. Is Takan Toto. It's a Mexican restaurant. Same block as these guys, 6196 Fraser. And actually, two blocks over, but same area. And uh, they're doing all sorts of Mexican dishes, just like everything under the sun, like every traditional kind of dish you find in Mexico they're doing. I've only had one dish there so far, but it's like the sopas with chicken. It was very good. A very kind of mom and popish um, kind of restaurant, very cozy feel inside. And um, they're open for lunch. They're open for dinner. And then over the North Shore, uh, so here's a new restaurant. This is actually from the Corsi family. And people may know um, they have other restaurants around. They have a restaurant in Whistler, um, they have, these have Gusto down down North Van. This has replaced it. It's called Sempre Uno. And it was packed. I was there the other night. They've only been open for two weeks and um, no advertising pretty much. And it was a full house. And I was on a Tuesday night, I was really surprised. And I thought, wow, like North Vancouver, Tuesday night, full house. And they said it's been full since they opened. So obviously people know where to go. They want some really good food and more about not fine dining exactly, but it's kind of like on that, that realm of things. And it's right across, right across from the uh, Polygon Art Gallery in North mm. Van. So you can't miss it. But uh, I had something called that night salad special. And it was just like us doing different kinds of salads. That was really good. Um, they're doing um, all sorts of different pastas, but interesting ones. Like this was a tagliatelle al grancho, and it was with brandy crab meat, batarga, gremolata, and a rosé sauce. So something different. Uh, I had another one, which was garganelli with red lentil ragu and roasted peanuts. And then I had some a veal medallion dish was very good. It had a Negroni ice cream sandwich, which was kind of a fun and kind of play on a Negroni and an ice cream. But uh, they're doing a lot of different things there. So you can find them at One Lawndale. I believe they're open. I believe almost I think every night for, for dinner. Uh, the manager told me they're adding a 50 seat patio coming next month, right out front. And uh, so a lot to look forward to in North Van for the summertime. And then lastly on, Ma- on Main Street, back on Main Street again, another Mexican spot. It's called Machete. It's opened at 1007 Main Street. It's just across from the Bodega on Main restaurant. And this is kind of a little different. They're going after, um, they're doing Mexican favorites, but not from the main cities. They're doing it from the small towns of Mexico. So more of a prehistoric idea of making tortillas by hand. They're importing the the, uh, corn from Mexico. They're doing a blue corn tortilla. Uh, Just a really super passionate uh, Chef Cecilia's passionate idea, you know, great idea. She's from Mexico, and she's like, I want to, you know, tribute to the small towns and the chefs in Mexico. And the dishes are a little bit different. So you find at Tecate's, I had no idea what it was, but it was very good. It was made with a special pumpkin flour on a blue corn tortilla. I had a taco with mezcal lime chicken. It was different. It was very good. It's something called machetes. I didn't even know what that was. So that was kind of like a uh, open face, I don't know how to explain it, but open face tortilla, but it's very long and has, you have different kinds of stews that go in it. I had a, um, a Iberia beef stew that went in that one. That was really good. And then something called esquites, and that's actually corn. So if you get corn on the cob, this is a sign of the same thing, except you don't have the cob, so you don't get the corn stuck in your teeth. And it's in a dish and it's got a bit of mayo on it. So that was really interesting. It was really good. And then they're making their own hot chocolate. They're roasting their own cacao beans right there in their shop and making the hot chocolate from scratch. Ooh. So I thought, wow, this is like really interesting, really different. 
And, you know, kudos to them for trying it. They said that they actually opened up two years ago in a commissary nearby, but it had no street front. So people would order up and get delivery to their home through delivery, but there was no way people could actually find it. So now they've got the sales of street front. People are driving by and walking by, and they've just opened like two weeks ago. So I think they just, uh, just a great idea, something different. If you love Mexican food, definitely go and check them out because you're going you're gonna to get a, a, a little bit of Mexican culture from the smaller towns outside of the bigger cities as opposed to what we have around town right now, which was a lot of Mexican food from the bigger cities. I, I love it. It just sounds so good. And I also love, like you were saying, that these are places that have just opened up and it's uh, kind of word of mouth, not uh, having to advertise. And so many people are, are flocking to them and, and trying out these great new foods. Yeah, exactly. Which is great, which is great for Vancouver because this is what we love and appreciate is, is finding something different that we may not get to in a different part of the world. And it's now here for us to enjoy. All right. What a great list and so many different choices and different foods. Richard, we'll leave it there. But as always, thanks so much. And we will talk to you again soon. Yeah, sounds good.